Well, good morning again. It is great to have you worshiping with us, and we are in the third and final sermon about hope. You'll notice today's title is The Placement of Our Hope. What I'd like to do is I'd like to start off with a quote by an individual, and I want you to take a moment and think about this. This is a quote by Ernest Hemingway, and he was famous for it. This is the quote that he said, all thinking men are atheists. Now think about that for a minute. There's two things that I noticed about this. All thinking men are atheists, so if you're male, we must therefore, if we think, be an atheist. The other thing that I find interesting is is notice that he didn't say women. Women must be smarter than men as I look at that. Ernest Hemingway, as we all know, was a famous author. In fact, many would tout him as sort of the uh, archetype of the male existence. He was famous, he had written many novels, many people sought after him. He had what many would consider the quintessential life. He was known as a womanizer, he was known as someone who was incredibly wealthy, he traveled the world, experienced multiple things, and in it, he was a devout atheist. You would think that in his life, because he had it all, he would have been someone who would have ended his life famously. But this is what we read on July 2nd, 1961. On July 2nd, 1961, Ernest Hemingway died of a shotgun wound to the head, from which his wife Mary said was an accident that occurred while cleaning his gun. This appeared in the New York Times on July 3rd, front page 1961. Now, why would someone who had all of the world, someone who was a famous author, someone who is taught in many major universities, have had his life end this way? We also come to discover that this isn't truly the real story. What we came or come to decide and see is the following aspect of how Ernest Hemingway actually died. In addition to physical deterioration in the months before his death, Hemingway plunged into a state of depression, delusion, and paranoia, possibly precipitated by his TBI, traumatic brain injury, that likes of which his friends had never before seen. While leaving for his second stay at the hospital, Hemingway said he needed to go to his house to get a few belongings. While he was accompanied by a nurse, doctor, and friends who had to monitor him constantly to keep him from hanging, or uh, sorry, from harming himself. But as soon as he opened the door, he rushed over to his guns, chambered around into a shotgun, and was only stopped from killing himself by a friend tackling and physically restraining him. Before getting uh, onto the plane to take off, he tried to walk into a spinning propeller. Once he was in flight, he twice attempted to jump from the aircraft. Hemingway shot himself in the head a day and a half after returning from the hospital. Why would a man who had everything in the world have this be his demise? What I would propose to you today is because he had no placement of hope. In his life, he was a devout atheist. There was no God. Interestingly enough, we come to discover that many famous individuals who are 
touted to be atheists actually are not. When we read more about them, when we discover more about who they are, they are agnostic. Individuals who do not believe in a formal God, but do not deny the existence of some greater power. Hemingway, on the other hand, was a devout atheist. I find it interesting that someone who has so much in the world, had won so many awards, written so many books, and is still considered one of the most prolific writers of his day, had this for his end. And the question that I would ask is, where was his hope? And friends, this morning what I want to do is I want to encourage you with Psalm 33 and talk about the placement of our hope recognizing that our hope comes from God. Our hope is brought to us by our relationship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And lovingly, what I want to tell you is this. Hemingway, while he had it all, had nothing. And his life ended in a delusional fury with a very sad outcome. This morning, we're going to ask this simple question. What is a key to a life that is filled with hope? But before we do, I want you to just take a moment, and I want you to ask yourself this following question. Where do I place my hope? Let me offer a few options. I place my hope in my ability. I place my hope in my intelligence. I place my hope in my position at work. I place my hope in my financial background. I place my hope in my health. I place my hope in my family. Or do we place our hope in God? This morning, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 33, and what we're going to discover is the psalmist is writing about the placement of our hope and where it should be. What we recognize as he starts off is he starts with this sort of exuberant, jubilant praise to God. And we say, well, how can he do that? And then as we continue to read down the psalm, we begin to discover the reason why this psalm is so jubilant in his praise to God. We come to the conclusion and we see at the very end of the psalm, it says, may your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. So let's take a moment and let's read through this psalm and let's discover these aspects of how we are to place our hope in him, recognizing that when we do, life becomes alive. Life becomes full of purpose. Life becomes full of meaning. And oftentimes when our hope is in other things, it becomes mundane, it becomes rote, it becomes dead. And yet when we place our hope in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our life is alive. The psalmist writes, sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with a heart. Make music to him on the ten-string lyre. Sing to him a new song. Pray skillfully and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. 
He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those who hope is in his unfailing love. Deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, where do we place our hope truly in life? When life occurs, when things are thrown at us, where is the placement of our hope? And lovingly, what I want to tell you is this. Oftentimes, what we do is, is we will hope in the temporal. That's not necessarily the first thing that we do is to place our hope in the eternal. And yet, what I want to tell you is this, that the temporal will fade away, yet the eternal will always stand. And so this morning, I want to just take a minute, and I want to break this down for you, because there's several aspects in this psalm that I think encourage us to show us who God is, the character of who he is. And then in doing that, it moves us toward a desire to place our hope in him and in him alone. The first thing that I want to show you is in the first five verses, and that is simply this. That when we are walking through life, when we are having life happen to us, we need to remember that God loves righteousness and the earth is full of his unfailing love. Why is that important? Because to be honest with you, all you need to do today is turn on the news and in about five minutes, you can get a wonderful dose of despair, anxiety, and depression. Things don't look very good out there, do they? When we look and we see the wars that are going on, when we see, obviously, all of the storms that are raging, whenever we look at the economy and we see what's happening to the stock market and our investments, we begin to wonder, is the world falling apart? Is there a God? Is there anything out there that saves us? And interestingly enough, I find it interesting to look and see and not to be a Debbie Downer, but to realize that a lot of the things that we place our hope in aren't going very well right now. And yet, what we read from the psalmist are these aspects of righteousness and God's unfailing love. We need to remember oftentimes when the psalmists are writing, they're writing in situations where there's great calamity. 
The majority of psalms are written not in good times. In fact, many of the psalms are written in very hard times. But what we see is in those hard times, the writers of the psalms look to God and God's character and God's promises and God's deliverance and God's unfailing love. And as they do and they discover and realize truly how faithful God is, they place more and more of their hope and trust in him. And to be honest with you, the situation doesn't change immediately. God doesn't just zap the psalmists out of the situation that they're in. But in realizing who God is and the promises that God gives, God bolsters them to a greater confidence, trust, and hope despite the calamity of the world that is around them. The psalmist writes these words and it says, Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. And can I, can I, can I just ask a question this morning? When we worshiped, just, this is between you and God. I don't need to know. When we worship this morning, were you singing joyfully to the Lord? Or were you just rotely singing the words? And I'll be honest, there are Sundays where I'm just rotely singing the words. In the back of my brain, I'm sitting there and I'm singing and I'm like, I've got this trouble, I've got this going on, this isn't right, that isn't happening, etc., etc., etc. And yet, outwardly, I'm expressing the words. And so one of the things that I want to encourage you in, because I'm telling you that I'm not better than any of you, is to take some time in the morning, and, I, and I, I get it, I get mornings are busy, I get it with kids, they're challenging, but to prepare your heart for worship, to come and to sing joyfully. And here's the thing, joyful is different than happy, okay? Joyful is different than happy. I'm not saying that if you come and the world is challenging, that something has occurred and you're struggling with things, that you've got to put on this fake happy face and make everybody think that all is okay. But in the calamity of the world, joy comes from knowing God and trusting in Him and His goodness and His purpose. And so what I would ask is, as we prepare our hearts for the following Sundays of worship is that we take some time to thank God for who he is, what he has given, and the promises that we have in him. So when we come, we sing with a joyful heart. Now my next question is, you who are righteous, is our heart, now we're not perfect, but is our heart built with a desire to live righteously before God? Because it will be hard to sing with joy if our heart doesn't desire his righteousness. And oftentimes, when we don't desire his righteousness, we can't sing joyfully. And so the next question I ask of you is simply this. Do you have a desire for God to work his righteousness in your life? Because it is fitting for the upright to praise him. The psalmist continues on. It says, praise the Lord with a heart. Make music to him on the ten-string lyre. Sing to him a new song. 
Play skillfully and shout for joy. Why? Okay, this is what the psalmist is saying. Do this, but why? What's the purpose? Do we just do this to do it? We find the purpose actually in verse 4. And what we read is this. For the word of the Lord is right and true, and he is faithful in all he does. Friends, how we find joy in the Lord and the righteousness of God is by trusting in his word and recognizing that it is true and that he's good in all that he does. And so the next question that I want to pose to you is this. How many of us are in the scriptures? And I'm not going to put a time in there because what I would do there is I would say, okay, you need to be in the scriptures 10 minutes a day. And some of you would say, oh no, I'm only in them two and I need to get to 10. And others of you would say, well, I'm in them in 15. And I'm, look at me, I got five minutes more than the pastor said. It's not about the time, it's about the heart. And so when we look at the scriptures, do we see that the word of the Lord is right and true? Is it right? Meaning, is it right in our lives? Do we recognize and trust it? And then do we trust the truth of it? Because oftentimes, when we look in the word, and we see a passage that convicts us, and it's staring right in our face, and we're confronted with the fact that our lives are not living according to the word of God, we have two choices. One, to obey, to submit, and to repent. The other, to dismiss and reject. And so lovingly, non-legalistically, but through your relationship with God, my question is, is what do you choose? Do you choose to say, God, you're right. Your word is convicting me. I recognize that my life isn't as it should be before you. Thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace because you are a good, loving, kind, and slow to anger God. But you've convicted me. The Holy Spirit within me is telling me that there is an aspect of my life that is not righteous. And because you are good, and because my hope is in you, I'm going to ask that you help me to turn from what it is that's drawing me away from you toward you, hence repentance. Or do you look at it and say, well, you know, yeah, I get that, but man, you should see my friend over there. They're 10 times worse. At least I'm not them. And then dismiss it and move on, not being convicted of what God is trying to tell you. And then finally, we see that he's faithful in all that he does. It's, it's one thing to look at an entity and say that it's right and true, right? And to believe in it, only to see that that entity then changes its promise or its direction. And I'm just going to throw out politicians. I'll just leave it there. So often we look at politicians and the promises that they give and the promises that they make. And as long as they're popular and they will get them elected, that's the promises that they do. The moment that they're not, what do they do? They change their direction. God does not. God remains faithful. What he says, he does. What he will do, he will do. What he has done, he has done. What he has given, he has given. Period. Popular or not. 
And the joy in that is when we recognize that God is unchanging, God is not moved by popularity or popular opinion because he is the great I am. And we realize that his word is righteous and true. We begin to recognize that that is where we can hang our hat. And then it says, the Lord loves righteousness and justice. I will be honest, when we look around the world today, we wonder often where is righteousness and justice. And it appears that oftentimes there is no righteousness and justice when we see some of the things that occur. But I promise you, knowing God's character and who he is and the fact that he loves righteousness and justice, he is bringing about righteousness and justice to the world. That is the promise that we see in the gospel. That is the promise that we see through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is the promise that we have knowing that Christ will come again and set things anew. And then it says, the earth is full of his unfailing love. This week, one of the things that I've done as I've looked at what is transpiring in the world is while I see that, I almost overlay it with that verse. How many of you guys remember, and I'm trying to remember, the, the uh, audiovisual projectors, right? And you would have them and you would lay it down and then it would shoot up onto the wall and then you could kind of lay another sheet on there sometimes and it would create maybe a different thing. So this is sort of the idea. Lay down this awful picture of the world right now. Wars that we're in, the weather that we have, the economy and its downturn, you know, all of the different things that are happening. And just lay it there and put it up on the wall and stare at it for a minute and say, man, without God, the situation looks pretty darn bleak, doesn't it? And then, essentially in this analogy, take the following words and lay it over right above it that the earth is full of his unfailing love. Right over it, right above it. And I don't know about you, but when you lay that over, whether visually or whether actually if you wanna do it or just mentally, as I look at that and I remind myself and I say, you know, things in the world don't look so great right now, but God's promise is that he is filling the earth with his, what? Love. No, 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 with his unfailing love. Don't miss that. Number one, it's one thing to fill the earth with love, okay? Love you as long as you do what I want. Love you conditionally. I'll love you if, or I'll love you when. I'll love you if you give to me. I'll love you if you vote for me. I'll love you if you give money. No, it's full of his unfailing love. Don't miss that. Write that down. If you guys are in your Bibles and you like to mark things, this is one of the things that I think is so important in this psalm. Unfailing love. It will not fail, meaning it's not going away. It's not, not going to be good enough. It's not going to be conditional. But it's unconditional, it's irrevocable, and it's undeniable. His unfailing love. The earth is full of it. 
And so friends, when we look at the world and we wonder what's going on and we begin to lose hope, we begin to either lose hope in the world or we begin to lose hope in ourselves or we begin to lose hope in those that are around us, don't look to that situation. Look to God who is the one who has created the world and is filling it with his unfailing love. And go back and when the enemy says, God doesn't love you, God doesn't love the world. There is no purpose. There is no plan. Say, no, that's not true. Because it says right here in the word of God that the earth is not partially, not somewhat, but full okay, of his unfailing love. And that bolsters our hearts and bolsters our spirits to be reminded that even though the world around us might be bleak, okay, on a grand scale, let alone personally what might be going on on your life. It might be one of these things where you're like, man, Trevor, like, you don't even know. Yeah, there are wars. Yeah, there are things going on in Florida and different spots with storms. Yeah, the economy is down, but I haven't even told you about my personal life. Man, you think that's going on? Let's add this. Let's add that. And friends, what I want to tell you is look back and recognize that God loves righteousness. And because he loves righteousness, he is filling the earth with his unfailing love. Now, the other thing, to be honest with you, you can take that and recognize too. How is he filling the earth with his unfailing love? Look around. That's how he's filling the earth with his unfailing love. You are the people of God. You are the church. So the other question that I want to ask you is this, is are we loving people as God loves us? So as we continue in the psalm, the first thing is, is to remember that God loves righteousness and the earth is full of his unfailing love. But as we dive into the next six verses, this is what we discover. That in order to have great hope in God, we have to recognize the power of his word and rely completely on the, on the Lord. Do we trust the word of God and the power that is in it? And do we rely completely on him? Is it a little bit of God and a whole lot of your own intellect? Is it a little bit of God and a whole lot of your creativity? Is it a little bit of God and a whole lot of your financial situation? Is it a little bit of God and your educational prowess? Or in our lives, when we encounter situations, do we recognize the power of God's word and do we rely completely on him? In verse six, the psalmist writes, by the word of the Lord, were the heavens made. Okay? He's essentially moving back to the Genesis account. He's reminding people, hey, just before you think about something, I just want to let you know that by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Now, I don't know about you, but there are times when I look at God and I say, God, I don't know. I don't know if you're doing this right. I don't know if I can trust you. I don't know that you're really doing what you should be doing. And all of a sudden, I read a verse like this, or I go to the Job account, and I realize that God kind of turns to Job and says, hey, where were you <laughs> when I made the heavens? And I kind of go, oh, yeah. 
Because I don't know about you, I mean, I can do a lot of talking, and I can say a lot of neat things, but I can't speak the heavens into existence. Only God can. And, and just, just take a minute, take a minute and think about that. Just, just imagine if I were God, and just by my breath, I spoke the heavens into existence. Their vastness and their greatness. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? And so when I think about the placement of my hope, not only do I realize that I'm placing my hope in a God who loves righteousness and is filling the the earth with his unfailing love, I'm placing my hope in a God who is powerful enough by his word just to say, I've created the heavens of which we exist. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water of the sea into jars. Now this is poetic, but it is also an aspect of the greatness of God. Imagine going to like Lake Panorama, right? And you, and you go down and you like scoop that water, okay? Now imagine if that's like the oceans that God has created and that's what the psalmist is writing. And he puts them into jars. It's this poetic analogy to demonstrate the greatness of God and yet the ease of how God has created the world. Hence, where do we place our hope? And then he puts the deep into the storehouses. Now because of that, because of how great he is, because he has breathed the heavens into existence, because he scoops the waters, Notice the next part. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Revere him, honor him, bring hope to his name. Let the people of the world revere him. Again, reiterating why. For he spoke and it came to be. I mean, it's one thing if I come up to you and say, guys, I'm going to speak the heavens into existence. I mean, I can say that, right? I'm going to speak the heavens into existence. And what's your thought right now? Good luck on that, right? What if I did? Now, I'm not God. I don't want to be blasphemous. But what if all of a sudden I just said, and I proved to you that that happened? Whoa. Wait a minute. So the psalmist is reiterating, for he spoke, past tense, done, period, final. And it, what? The creation came to be done, period. No question, no concern. For he spoke and it came to be. 100%. And so we look at this and we see the power of God's word. So the first thing I want you to see is simply this, that creation displays the power of his word. When you doubt God, when you wonder where he is, do me a couple of things. Go out, particularly in these next couple of nights, some gorgeous evenings, right? Gorgeous fall days. Go out and say, God, can I trust you? 
Are you really doing what you should be doing? And then do me a favor, go out at like 10 o'clock tonight, right? I think that's when the football games are done, maybe 10.30 for some of you guys, whatever it might be. And just look up. Just look up at the stars and realize that God spoke all of that into existence and say, you know what, God, if you can speak this into existence, then therefore your word must be true. Get lost in the Milky Way, which, by the way, is one galaxy of trillions, uncountless numbers. And so realize that creation displays the power of his word. How many of you love fall uh, pictures, fall photographs? How many of you love the changing of the leaves, right? Okay. Some of you I know have been out looking at the changing leaves. One of my favorite things, I absolutely love pictures from like southern Colorado. Uh, I love the changing aspens. I love the gold, okay, of the aspens interlaid obviously with like the, the kind of the deep greens of the pines. And there's this one picture that is just unbelievable to my eyes. I don't know how the photographer did this, but they lined up this shot and in the shot you essentially have a tree, I believe, okay, don't, I'm not an arborist, but I believe like a maple and it's red. And then behind it you have this grove of aspens that are gold and then behind that you have essentially uh, evergreen pines which are green, okay? And I just look at that and I'm like, unbelievable color. And God's the one that's doing that. And when we look at how creation displays his majesty and the power of his word because he speaks it into existence, we can trust that if God spoke the earth and the heavens into existence, he's spoken in his word in the scriptures. And they're righteous and true and full of his unfailing love. And then it continues on in verse 10. It says, For the Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. And then it says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chooses for his inheritance. And so one of the things that I want to show you is, is that God's plans display the power of his word. How many of you are history buffs? Got a couple of hands, okay. What's the average length of a nation? 200 to 300 years. Now, just don't freak out. Yeah, we're getting close to 300, okay. What do we know? about aspirations of the human plan. Some of the greatest empires lasted a thousand years, but only a thousand years in the vastness of eternity. We recognize, and again, we look back to World War II, we look at Hitler, we realize that he was wanting to establish the Third Reich. The Third Reich was essentially this idea or this ideology where we would recreate essentially modern Rome and the Reich would last a thousand years. How did that go? Not so well, did it? And so here's what I wanna tell you. Not to belittle our country, not to belittle the great United States of America, but in reality, in the vastness of history, nations on average last two to three hundred years. They're lucky if they last beyond. 
And so the next thing I ask is, where do we place our hope? Do we place our hope in our country? Or do we place our hope in God? And we recognize that God foils the plans of nations. He thwarts the purposes of people. Reverse, but what? The plans of the Lord stand firm forever. They don't stand firm for a period. They don't stand firm for a moment. They don't stand firm for a little while. They stand firm forever, period. And the purposes of his heart through all generations. Take a minute and just, just look at that verse. The purposes of his heart through all generations. You are here today because God has called you to him. But you are also here today because others have come before you. The church exists generation to generation, generation to generation, and the purpose continues on until when? Until God says to his son, it's time to go collect your bride. Of which is the establishment of his kingdom, of which we will worship him in his kingdom forever. His purposes continue forever. And then it says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. Think about that for a minute. There's two ways to look at that. That can be obviously territorial. That can be speaking. Essentially here it's speaking to the nation of Israel. But it also can be speaking to the nation or the nationality of the people of God. And so my question is, is, is God our Lord? Because it doesn't say, blessed is the nation who believes in God, or a God. But it says, blessed is the nation whose God, okay, big G, is the Lord. Okay? Not many gods, not multiple gods. Better yet, not God the Father. You're saying, wait a minute, what do you mean by that? It isn't God the Father, it is God the Father, but notice the term, the Lord, Yahweh. Okay, the tetragrammaton known in scripture. Why is that there? It is there to demonstrate not only is blessed in the nation whose God is the Lord, but it is there to ask the question, is God your Lord? Because it's one thing to say, oh yeah, okay, there's a God, etc., etc., but have you made him your Lord, Lord of your life? Do you submit to him? Is he the one who is ruling your being? And so, friends, as we walk through this, what is the key to a life that is filled in hope? First, we have to see and remember that God loves righteousness and the earth is full of his unfailing love. But then we also need to recognize the power of his word and rely completely on him. And the reason that we do this is, is we can see that creation displays the power of his word and that God's plans display the power of his word. 
And that because of that, then as we move into sort of the final verses of this psalm, we are to trust how God works, knowing that his ways are not our ways. Anybody ever question what God is doing? I'm the only one. Yeah, I think we all do, don't we? At some time, God, what are you doing? I don't get it. I don't understand. Right? But we trust how he works, knowing that his ways are not our ways. Watch kind of how the, the psalmist unfolds this. He says, essentially, from heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. Okay? First and foremost, let's just ask ourselves, do we ever get to see that perspective right now? Do we get to look down on earth from heaven and see all mankind? We don't, do we? And so right there, I look at it, and sometimes when I say, God, you know what? I don't know what you're doing and I don't understand. I look back, similar to what I've said before. But God, I don't have the seat that you have. I don't have the visual that you have. I don't sit in heaven and look down on all mankind. But you do. And from his dwelling place, he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. You could just sit on that verse and meditate on that for years. He who forms the hearts of all. Now, take a minute. He who forms the hearts of all. So the person sitting next to you that you don't like, that's different than you, that has different thoughts than you, that's a Raiders fan. Sorry, Scott, I had to throw that in there. He who forms the hearts of all. Brothers and sisters, what I'm going to tell you is, is that is so convicting to me when I look and I see someone who is so opposite of what I profess or what I believe or how I act or what I think is good and right and true. It is so convicting when I look at that individual and I recognize that they are the antagonist of who I am. And yet... I come to realize that it is God who has formed the hearts of all. And if God has formed the hearts of all, then should I not go and love that person as Christ has formed them? I'm not saying I have to agree. I'm not saying that I have to change my life. I'm not saying that I have to change my opinion. I'm not saying that I have to change what I believe in. But rather than becoming angry and embittered, may I look at that and say, God, you have formed their heart. May I show your heart to them. And then he continues on and it says, no king is saved by the size of his army. Just, I mean, boom, right there. What an amazing thing. Massive armies, massive nations, and yet right there it says, no king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. 
all of the power of man, all of the ability of man, the psalmist is looking and saying, hey, it doesn't hold anything to the strength, power, and nature of God. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance despite its great strength. It cannot save. Just before you think that you can find something in this world that is strong enough, big enough, large enough, powerful enough to save yourself in your own doing, I'm going to tell you that it isn't possible. And so what we see is simply the psalmist is saying that God does not work through man's strength or schemes. This is important, real quick, because sometimes what we try to do is we try to say, okay, God, I'm going to do my thing, right? And then I want you to come along and bless it. I don't, I don't need you. I'm going to do my thing. And then I want you to come and I want you to bless it. I want you to work to my agenda. We don't do that, do we? And then when God doesn't bless it, what do we do? We get mad at him and we begin to say, God, you're not there. Why aren't you doing this? And the whole point is, is we don't tell God what to do. <laughs> God doesn't work through man's strength or schemes. But what we come to discover in the following verses, 18 through 20, is this, that God works through those who fear, trust, and place their hope in him. Right there, we see, essentially, okay, you have the king, his army, you have a warrior and his strength, a horse, okay? Back then, for them, horses were like tanks. I mean, they were the armament of, of, of an army, power. And he's saying, hey, none of these things work. And then, in verse 18, but the eyes of the Lord are on those who, what? Fear him, okay? Not afraid, again, this is honor, respect, revere. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. So brothers and sisters, the question then goes back again, where is your hope? Where are you placing your hope? Is it in the unfailing love of God? And then notice what the hope is for. To, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. Poetic, literal, metaphorical. Number one, literal, okay, yeah, to keep them going on this earth. But I think there is a spiritual undertone to that that is speaking to obviously their what? Dead state apart from God. And then, notice it says this, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Boom, there it is. He's built to it. He's talked to it. He's demonstrated. And then these last verses are essentially where the psalm is driving toward. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. And so in that, what we realize is because of it, next two verses... Right? And so that is the last part of this. Therefore, we are to trust and place our hope in Him. Verses 21 through 22. In Him, our hearts rejoice. 
Again, let me just reiterate, where do your hearts rejoice? Is it in you, your ability, your task, your money, your intelligence, whatever it might be, or is it in him that you rejoice? Why do you rejoice? For we trust in his holy name. So the next question is, is do you trust in his holy name? Holy meaning set apart, revered, honored, and glorified. Do you trust in it? And then, may your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord. Are you asking for the unfailing love of God to rest upon you, even as we put our hope in you? Do you realize that when you put your hope in him, his unfailing love is there, and you can trust him, despite what's going on around us? And so the thing that I want to show you is this. This idea essentially is summarized kind of in this following statement. We must realize that life is filled with hope. And a thankful heart is inextricably linked to the life that has complete trust in the goodness of God and the authority of his word. That is like quintessential to having hope in the world today. We cannot be grateful to God until we first recognize our full dependence upon him for all that we have. When we do, our life becomes filled with hope and a thankful heart. What is the key to a life that is filled with hope? Essentially, this final thing, take-home truth. The key to a life that is filled with hope is a thankful heart that worships and relies completely on the Lord. How do we get there? Go back and read Psalm 33 and recognize who God is and what he does. And when we do, that is how we have hope, a thankful heart that worships and relies completely on God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today, we just thank you for you. We thank you for the writing of the Psalms. We thank you for particularly the writing of this Psalm, Psalm 33. And Lord, we just thank you that in a world often that appears so hopeless that we need not become fearful or discouraged or afraid because it is in you that we place our hope. Father, this isn't our home. This isn't what we're destined for. This is not what we are meant to have. But rather, what we are meant to have is you. And Father, thank you that in that, you pursue us with an unrelenting love, an unfailing love. Father, to the point that as we look th through scriptures, we see that we continually reject you. We continually turn to our own ways. We continually turn to our own strength. And yet you continue time and time again to pursue. Father, you pursue us to the point that you gave us your one and only Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to die upon a cross so that in our unrighteousness we could be made righteous by the righteous one. And Father, we can do so freely by your mercy and your grace. And when we do, we receive an eternal inheritance. We are adopted into your family as sons and daughters of the living king. And we have a kingdom that will never end. Father, that is hope. And so in it, Lord, as the world ebbs and flows, as things vie for our attention, 
as the world turns to us and says, hey, place your hope here. Place your hope there. Place your hope here. Place your hope there. We can turn to you and say, no. Father, my hope is in you and in you alone because I trust in your unfailing love. We thank you. We do love you. We do pray all of these things in your name, dear Jesus, and we ask it all by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say, amen.